Hello and welcome to another episode of Echopunks, uh, filmed live in front of an automated audience. We're a group of smart people who are curious about our world, and in this case, we've organized a kind of town hall to talk to people who we've recruited by paying for a modest ad on Facebook that basically ask, what are your AI ethics? How do you think about AI? What, what is, uh, do you think responsible AI is or shouldn't be? And is AI something that as a society, we should be more involved in, in running and in participating and in governing and in, in, in understanding? And in that regard, uh, we brought together a group of wise people and random internet folks who may pop in and drop out as the conversation goes. But we wanted to start very briefly by just kind of defining what AI is. And ironically, here in Canada, the government of Canada has actually passed legislation so that the notion of artificial intelligence is codified in Canadian law. And I'm going to read the paragraph that very briefly defines what AI is, according to the Canadian government. Artificial intelligence systems means a technological system that autonomously or partly autonomously processes data related to human activities through the use of a genetic algorithm, a neural network, machine learning, or another technique in order to generate content, make decisions, recommendations, or predictions. And what's interesting about that definition is it really comes down to one key phrase, process data. Fundamentally, that's what AI is. AI doesn't think, AI doesn't understand, AI doesn't have some omnipotence. The only thing that AI does is process data, at least according to the Canadian government. And I think that's a reasonable starting place because I would argue that we're witnessing a mythology of AI that deliberately prevents people from having conversations like we're having today. Because they think that it's some fancy schmancy kind of, you know, complicated machine, when in fact it's kind of just a calculator, right? Or a word processor or an image generator or something that has a fairly defined capability and not necessarily the magic that people ascribe it to, but, a gun, for example, is a fairly straightforward mechanical device that can be used for great damage, right? The same way that AI as a system can be used in a straightforward way for direct damage. Now, to get our conversation around ethics, around AI started, I've asked uh, Jeanette, who has a doctorate in the history of technology and is someone who's relatively critical uh, of, of, the, of the genre, as we heard in the pre-show, to kind of start us off. And if you want to uh, uh, both uh, share what you think AI is, uh, uh, both uh, as a technology, as a tool, but also then how it applies to ethics as a way of sort of opening up our, our discussion. And then why don't you throw to Murley, who uh, uh, with Lawrence is kind of our token young people. Uh, Murley's a digital artist who also has been using AI. And I think as another interesting way of kind of defining what it is. And hopefully that's enough to get the conversation going and, and the rest of you will feel welcome to uh, uh, jump in and, and, and share your thoughts about what you feel AI is and how as a society or as an individual you're thinking about ethics when it comes to, to using these tools and using this technology. Jeanette, please. 
Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, so of course I tend to look at this in terms of historical precedents. And, and the really obvious one that jumps out is the printing press and the advent of mass commercialized publication. That's, you know, it's, it's in many ways, the reactions to that were comparable to a lot of, especially a lot of the fears that we see around AI today, that this will be the death of art, that we're going to drown in a sea of, you know, mediocre bullshit, that um, it, it will be the end of any kind of cultural standards, any kind of ethical standards. All of these are things, uh, ideas that were very hotly debated, you know, in the 18th century. So uh, there is kind of a sense of, well, we've been through this before. This is the kind of thing that happens whenever a major technological change happens that has such wide ranging impacts that truly does affect the way we think, the way we see the world, the way we do business. But at the same time, I really wanna go back to the tool you mentioned, Jesse, a gun, because this raises a really interesting question. I think arguably guns are designed pretty much for one purpose and that's destructive. I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a neutral or even positive use of a gun that didn't, you know, maybe you can't, but, and, and so it raises this question of, well, is any technology truly neutral um, or is baked into the design and the fundamental conception of the tool, some kind of moral orientation? And I don't have an answer to give at this moment, but that's an ongoing open question for me, but I do think it's a question worth exploring. Um, and Merle, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's your I turn mean, to be up. I think the two examples you brought up are interesting, the the printing press and the, the gun as well. So I, I hear what you're saying about uh, a gun is used for destruction, but you can also use a nail gun to build a house or you know some sort of construction. And the printing press, like you said, you know, everyone was scared of all the garbage that would be put out. And I think that's a big thing that's happening now with uh, generated text, things like chat GPT, uh, particularly in academia. And there certainly is that, there, there certainly will be that. Um, I think it's more interesting to think about where we have come from the print press and the, the accessibility that people have in using word processors and being able to publish widely. There is certainly still garbage out there, but there's also a much wider range of diverse perspectives that are shared because of those advances in technology. Um, I think when it comes to ethics around AI, you know, I, I think it was PJ who asked in the chat, who has guns and who has the fancy calculator? So there are lots of civilians that have guns. Uh, there probably aren't as many civilians currently who have the fancy tools to create or, or necessarily the, the know-how to create their own AI models and uh, AI tools. I think that's something that's going to be evolving over time where creating your own AI uh, and it's arguably already happening with things like your Google search engine. We talk about poisoning the algorithm sometimes. So everyone does in a way have their own AI, but I think those tools will become uh, more easily created by individuals and more accessible. 
there is obviously still the opportunity for damage for destruction um and so how we go about making those tools accessible um and or using them is definitely an ethical issue uh i'm coming from the perspective of art where there's a lot of concern over things like copyright um fair use and how ai is all generally speaking trained on someone else's work uh, so when i generate an ai image that's using someone else's photography or illustration and doing a certain amount of pattern recognition to create whatever image so there's a certain amount of theft there but there is the principle of stealing like an artist and where that lies in that uh, gray area i'm not quite sure yet um i suppose what i'll say sort of in closing here is that ai doesn't have to be bad it doesn't have to be destructive i think uh the, the guns is an in interesting comparison because most people have that perspective of guns as being dangerous destructive um and you could argue that a nail gun is an entirely different tool but it's very similar technology and could arguably also be destructive uh, i think demystifying ai is a huge step that needs to happen i think the mythology and the magic behind it is what is creating a lot of pandemonium around this topic and people just need to learn and be taught i think uh what ai is how it can be used for good and um you know to to have it demystified a bit so that it isn't quite so scary sharita you've got your hand up i do um when jeanette was talking i was reminding myself of uh, it's more of a theoretical perspective on technology but it it comes under the social construction of technology so when you look at technology, whether it's a gun, whether it's a staple gun, whether it's AI, etc., it might be useful to try to pull apart what that social construction is, because then you might be able to make some decisions as to how it can be used for some common good but to always look at ai as you know the wizard behind the curtain um doesn't give you any agency and that's why people are afraid they don't have any agency but if you can begin to move it and begin to try to parse it out as what is this social construction of technology, you're going to come up with things that you may want to do something about. For instance, one of the things of AI is algorithms. We, a lot of us, think about how biased those algorithms are because they're scraping data from just a certain part of the population. So the more we begin to break it down, what you know, I my theory. I kind of like the social construction of technology, but whatever theory you use gives you more of a purpose, um, a perspective, 
you pull back and you go, okay, so, you know, how do I begin to decipher this? Well, and it, you know, we've we've brought up a few issues here, and and you know, still playing in the realm of what is AI, and and I like uh, PJ's point about who has access to these smart calculators. AI depends upon a lot of data, and we have a lot of data because of a surveillance society. So we're creating this feedback loop in which those who subject themselves to the surveillance get rewarded by the AI those who have deliberately avoided the surveillance and used privacy they then get excluded because they haven't subjected themselves to the ai or they get misjudged by the ai because the ai doesn't know how to understand them because that data isn't there so it creates this kind of paradox which you know pj pointed it as the garbage in garbage out which is you know true in many of these systems but in many respects, you know, it, it all comes down to how you use them. And I think that's where there is a, 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 an underlying hierarchy to the way in which hi, uh, AI is now being used. And PJ, I'm going to bring you in because you're doing the Arnold Horshack rule of, uh, oh, Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata. Um, you know, that, that we're talking about AI as if it's equally available, but of course it isn't. And it never has been. But what's interesting now is the way in which the dialogue or the discount discourse around AI assumes that it is. And that's where the AI ethics conversations proceeding without participatory input, without anyone having a say, because the assumption is that AI is the same for everybody. So please, uh, uh, PJ, jump in. And then, David, I'm going to also uh, bring you in because you've uh, made a very relevant comment. Can you hear me OK with this? Yes. No? OK, good. Um, yeah, I, I, my thoughts aren't really well organized, but I'm just seem very frustrated by the almost optimism that we even can. I'm sorry, but I don't feel listened to and have been for years having this ominous sense of dread at who gets counted and what gets counted in the pandemic. Uh, people thought, said to me before this even, oh, you know, climate change is going to hit us all equally and the rich and the poor, we're going to be united as a community by this kind of crisis coming because it's going to hit everybody equally. And I right back then knew it was bullshit. And I saw early models coming out of Vancouver and Toronto and LA of predictive policing and artificial intelligence in uh, how people were red zoned, how, you know, even you look at debt and how uh, communities like mortgages are accessed and stuff like that. I've seen that for years since since 2008, even pointing out how unequal and unfair that kind of thing is. So you see when garbage in, garbage out, what they're counting and who's counting and who gets to count even. When, um, do people here know about Timnit Jibru? She's yeah. a Google AI ethicist who got fired. Well, when she started researching this and speaking out more, a whole bunch of people came to her and were like, yep, what you're saying is absolutely right. They have to listen to you. And what did they do? They fired her. At the same time, I thought I would verify my years of doing Linux that Jesse taught me from back in the day and get the Google IT certificate that year. And here I am thinking, I'm, I'm not accessing the chance to use AI. AI is using me. 
They're using me. They, they don't deserve me. They don't deserve to even fucking learn from me. They don't. And so I feel more like we have to, they're not going to say, oh, we heard your ethics conversation and now we're going to take an ethical approach. They're only going to go to the extent that we force them to listen to it. We organize. There was this great Medium article. I'm going to ch chant it um, for you, but you have to load it up because I'm not sure that I can share the screen like in uh, open broadcast, but you have to. Um, if you post the link in the chat. It's like, yeah, the link in the chat and it's right at the top. Fuck the algorithm. It's these young people re rebelling against how they during the pandemic had algorithmic grading, which just based on very stupid little, very garbage in, garbage out, very um, hesitant, uh, overstressed teacher. And they're like, well, you're predicted to not get a very good grade, so you got cut. So all these people who dropped forced them to reconsider it by gathering in the streets. And so back to the, back to the day, as you know that I would always say this, it depends upon, I think, bodies both in the streets and also to make our, I think Facebook and these things are really enemies of, of our social organizing and of our social mobilizing. And we have to get off, people off this onto, I have to go to work very soon, Jesse, so I'm not going to be able to stay to the end. But I do hope that you have further town halls about open source software that help people to use it in a way that gets people off these and realize that's not your only choice. And if there's things that you think that you can do to intervene or to force them to, to take an ethical approach and to break the out of the red zones that, that, that we have for, for our food distribution and for our health distribution and for our access to basic, you know, even bus and transportation, I see how that's algorithmic, algorithmically a class struggle in Surrey. I come in a very working class neighborhood in Surrey and I see how people are just not counted. People, if you don't speak English and you, you're not white and you don't raise your voice and you're not rich, you don't, your sickness doesn't get counted in the COVID statistics. Your lack of bus service doesn't get counted in the bus service. It's only when you complain and you raise your voice, like North Vancouver has excellent bus service, but Surrey in an evening, no. And so how did they predict that? Well, they predict it algorithmically, but you don't get counted if you don't make noise, right? If you're not in their, their register, the algorithms are built by, by mostly so, rich white men in, in computer access. So, so let, me, let me ask you a question and, and sort of set it up to David's point about natural language interfaces. So with open source, because I agree that they're, not, they're, they're counting in a way that benefits their policies. They're counting in a way that benefits their worldview. Could open source be used to, to do dis, to alternate counts? Right? Could open source be used to count what they're not counting in a way that, you know, uh, allows for, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of mobilizing that you're describing, right? And, and the I kind of documentation of what know. you're describing. It's, it's, we're on Zoom right now, right? Like, the, the, I'm, I, you contacted me through Facebook and we're on Zoom. Jesse, I'm sad. Like, really, seriously, it shouldn't be like this. But it is. But that's but that's how you showed up. You and I should. I know this is the sad part. The sad reality is that you and I shouldn't be um, doing this. I would like to see scuttlebutt, like gossip protocols that go through Bluetooth, low low 
person to person and get off this. But okay, now now that you're going there and 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 we're in the full the migration doesn't happen, right? But now that you're going there, we're on a on a full town hall. I will point out that you did sign up for an email list I've run that talks about a signal group and that has those protocols there. And and I removed you from the email list because you weren't opening it at all. So I totally understand what you're saying about the difference between protocols and Facebook, but Facebook got you here. Yeah. And the emails and the signal contacts didn't. And that's why the paradox of why we're having an AI interface. And in particular, I, I want to uh, ask you this question and, and, and set this up in terms of a larger context. Do you think, given your 20 years, 30 years of using technology, do you think that the natural language interface, which is represented by ChatGPT, and, and open source technologies as well, do you think they make a difference in terms of the accessibility of, of this type of technology in, in the way that you might use it as a communicator? I have a lot of hope in the future. I do, and the kids. Um, I've, I've learned from the Solarpunk Magic Computer Club in Aotearoa and other lunar and social punks who are taking the best of social ecology and unifying it, I think, in a way that's like, we will take what we can use from them and we will try to protect our people. But we should not have an optimism that we can run this or that we have access to this. This is gonna be used against us. And that we should try to protect people to understand how valuable their data is and their faith and their time and their attention. And like the brave, system of basic attention tokens, try to help people to monetize that in a social way and make the user interfaces easier for people because that's why people keep coming back to Facebook. It's too hard to leave all the people that you know, right? And so that's what happened when people got rocked by Twitter. They started to think, okay, well, let's move. Let's move. Where can we move to? And I'm not sure that... uh, our alternatives, Mastodon and Blue Sky and stuff like that are really up to the ease of use for mass migration. I've had trouble with mass migration from Zoom to Jitsi even with people and Matrix, but I still think that we should keep trying and there's a lot of hope for the youth in the future in, in fighting. But I do think we have to um, be a lot more militant about it and pointing out how it's being used against us in a, in a real class struggle analysis okay. so so david that that's a very difficult act to follow pj brings i think a lot a lot of passion and critical analysis and your point about optimism i i think is reasonable and misplaced in the sense that we're not placing optimism in the sense that our words will have an influence on the current status quo rather we're placing optimism that there will be interest in the future in our current position which may not otherwise be available unless we articulate it, as you so eloquently did. And I thank you for that, PJ. But David, I think you're making a very interesting point about uh, a natural language interface and that the accessibility of this technology is both uh, a, a remarkable but equally scary for a lot of people. Do you want to elaborate on that? Because I think that's a really important insight. Yeah, um, and I, I think the, that that uh, PJ's important points were were super important and something that's 
you know, horrible to watch again and again repeat itself. And and I don't know what the most effective um, uh, counter um, to the way that, you know, power networks get uh, a hold of potentially um, popularly useful uh, technology and um, and kind of make it their own thing and, and make put make them put them at the center of it and uh, and you know I, I think there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of hidden networks uh, that we don't even you know that you know are, are only kind of hinted at and I've and I've seen the whole thing play out you know uh, since the earliest days when in theory this was going to be a the whole web is going to be a database where everyone can contribute it's going to be all these different perspectives and everyone's like nah um, and, uh, you know, and, and now, and now most people are really still, uh, unfortunately using computers like they're, you know, pieces of paper with string between them, um, at best. And, um, um, so, you know, the, the, uh, the large companies, you know, along with some research organizations, uh, do take good advantage and they, they create databases and, and of course along came, um, large language models and, um, and I think I think that you know they did a disruption thing and they created an amazing technology out of it. Um, and I think that you know they're a mixture of genuine surprise of what they've created, um, as well as uh, a lot of really opportunistic people who, you know, are just very focused on all the glamour and of of you know being powerful and uh, and all that. So, uh, but I think that there is a really a really good potential. Um, I think uh, that. Um, you know, you see the movement towards making um, uh, micro versions of ChatGPT, where um, you know you could run it. Um, everyone could run it on their own device in a completely uh, self-contained way, and somebody who um, you know can't communicate easily uh, could use it as an intermediary. Um, you know, we're already seeing examples of that, um, and you can ask really deep and detailed questions, and and usually get a good, a good answer back. Um, it's really, I mean, what I what I really observe in the way I. You know, for me, the breakthrough was realizing that these things are not like a intelligence, like an, a human intelligence, but they're a really useful grab bag of algorithms. You can ask it for patterns. You can ask it to translate and uh, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think PJ is absolutely right. We have to find ways to uh, make sure that um, this is just not um, rich get richer um, outcome. Um, and uh, and it has, I think, it has a huge potential to to, to do that. And I think actually, you know. All the big companies in the world, um, Microsoft and Apple and everyone else, they're, they're going to be they're going to be very two faced about it. On the one hand, they're going to you know they're going to try to make something that really serves individuals. On the other hand, they're going to make things that put them at the center of things. And uh, you know, open source um, open source uh, work in this area is really interesting. Um, so, do you still see me? Yeah. Okay. So I have to do well. My anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very interesting work in open source. Um, uh, it's always it's always a weird mix because Facebook. I completely agree about Facebook. So I, I very begrudgingly use Facebook, um, um, but uh, they've actually they they're the ones who led the charge in open um, open um, versions of uh, of ChatGPT. And there's a French company that um, is doing some very uh, advanced work. Um, and could you know give us some really really potentially uh, or, or already very useful but even even incredibly useful uh, personal uh, digital agents that uh, you know we can use to to organize our own information and communicate and share information. But you know at the same time, along with the the kind of the kind of corporate and and power structure threat, uh, it could also be isolating as well. 
Well, and to the point that PJ posted in the chat, the energy usage of AI is uh, incredible, uh, arguably obscene. And in fact, if you look at uh, Sam Altman, he basically describes how he's going to need nuclear fusion <laughs> to be able to actually achieve uh, some of the desires that they want. Uh, uh, Jeanette did a really interesting article recently on critical data center studies which is people trying to tie the environmental and political uh, dynamics around these data centers, which are the prerequisite of AI as we know it. Um, Carly, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, partly because I know this is an area that you've sort of been thinking about, and, and ethics is something that you've also been thinking about uh, for probably your entire life. Um, so I'm, I'm curious sort of where you fall within this larger notion of, of uh, AI as a tool, but also AI as a creative tool, which is something Murley brought up earlier, and I think we've sort of lost in terms of both the copyright dynamics of AI, but also, you know, making art more accessible, right? And making it easier for people to create stuff. It, it, it seems like there's, uh, again, a, a complicated dynamic to all of this. Thanks, Jesse. And thanks everyone for what you've shared so far. Like I, I'd actually love to answer that question because you can't be an artist and not get excited about some elements of AI and you can't be an activist and not be really angry and terrified about some elements of AI. But um, actually, like I have questions I wanted to ask people I've been talking and, and sort of the that have come up from this good conversation. Um, so one of them is, like, if, if we are unwittingly the workers of AI by producing data and sharing data, like how do we withhold our labor in a collective way? Because it's like when people opt out, that's individual. And so they're not going to have the same effect, right? So I do wonder about that. And I'm curious what ideas people have had about that. Like what's, I, I'm not appraised about what's happening on that front. I'd be curious to hear like a report back from anybody. Um, and what other ways do we have to collectively have any force or have any power on that? So there's that. Another kind of question I have so from the background of an educator is thinking, okay, so there's this premise that to have democracy function, we need to also have education so that people can be informed enough to make informed decisions. But then we've got this massively transformative um, technology coming along and how can we have our education keep up, like keep up so that our understanding of it isn't just hype like you talked about, like so that we have a genuine idea of what it is uh, and, and what our part is in it. And then, then I get weird and I just think I have sort of trippy thoughts about self-awareness. Like if we have individual self-awareness, what is our collective self-awareness? Has these tools help us see our data in different ways and see ourselves? And it's not really our true self. It's just usually our consumer self. Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, you talked about it being inevitable, people thinking it's inevitable. And I wonder... How much of that is people thinking that the technology is inevitably going to be disruptive or negative or dangerous? Or is it that they just think it's inevitable that the power structures will use this technology in ways to their own self-advantage that will disregard human rights? And so that's the kind of contrast I want to be curious to hear about. And then just for the kicks, I'll put out the weirdest use of AI this is a very vulnerable thing to share, but I think it's important for us to be like that. But, and it's terrifying. Like people will probably say this is terrifying, but 
I have so much data. Like I record me and my kids. I record, I write, journal, I photograph, I make films, make art. I have so much data. And, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. I don't know how long I'll be here. And so sometimes I think like, oh, cool. I'll have like an AI grandmother version of me that's around one day. And I'm not totally terrified of that. I'm kind of like, I just trust that some cool artists will make that possible. And then that data will be out there. So that's like my hopeful, vulnerable thing. Right on. And, and, and I actually I, got tearful saying that, but I think like that's, that's my evidence that I'm a very convincing AI. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's so good to see you, Kylie. It's Likewise, PJ. Nice to see you too. And you too, Jesse. Well, and, and I think it speaks to, you know, uh, the desire not to live forever, but the desire to be there for our loved ones. Right. And the way in which this technology can allow us, this is what I want us to do today is speak to the future. Right. So that we can record what we're thinking about this stuff and this technology now. You know, David posted a comment about power usage, which I think reinforces PJ's point about open source, that it doesn't actually have to be power intensive, that the quest for artificial general intelligence is power uh, consuming. But if we limited AI to a kind of personal usage, it could be run on mobile phones. It could be run uh, without the intensity of the cloud. And, and again, that comes to a kind of political economic choice that comes with all of this. So Lawrence, I, I warned you earlier that I, I was going to bring you into this conversation. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious sort of how you've been reacting and how you've been thinking about this stuff, given that like Murley, you ostensibly have the greatest amount of future ahead of you of, of most of us here. So, you know, outside of the optimism, uh, pessimism debate, I mean, w where do you fall in terms of AI ethics and kind of how you think about your own use of AI, both within a personal context, but also within a larger political context? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I think uh, I definitely tend to come at this sort of thing as more of a layman. I, you know, would uh, put myself closer to the, the side of the general population in terms of uh, knowledge and educated, like, experience. Uh, I think I'm kind of well aware that I'm using AI every day in every part of my life. Um, but I think uh, the kind of, like, deeper understandings of those implications are not something that I think of, of frequently. And I think that can be said for a lot of people. Um, and so I, I kind of recognize the importance of having these discussions on ethics because that's prompting me to actually think about this stuff, right? Whereas I, I more often than not wouldn't. Um, I, think, I think part of that is just being kind of comfortable uh, and and passive um but if there's any hope for change you know that that can't continue so i think um a big part of of what i would advocate for would be kind of uh like merle said before demystifying right for the general public and uh breaking down some of that mythology uh, you know, trying to explain, you know, why it's important to know about this stuff and uh, and kind of translating it into to layman's terms for for people um, to ease some of the, the fears 
Yeah. Right on. And, you know, part of uh, uh, my agenda for, for you know, uh, having this conversation was to deal with, as David was talking about, the kind of new natural language interfaces, the way in which ChatGPT and MidJourney are sort of changing the public discourse. But before I go there, you know, Jeanette, I, I want to bring you back into the conversation, both to respond to stuff you may have heard that, that you want to respond to. But I, I was also curious if you wouldn't mind also talking about the concept of algorithmic folklore, which is sort of when people deconstruct the algorithms on social media, like when Twitter users talk about how Twitter's changed, kind of pre-Elon Musk, post-Elon Musk, and the way in which by using social media, people are kind of trying to deconstruct social media by just talking to each other about the user experience as a kind of bottom-up understanding of, of how these platforms work. And this is also where I'll invite Brian, Amelia, Susan, Phil, by all means, join in the conversation. We just ask that when you do chat that you put your camera on, but you could either uh, 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 throw your hand up via Zoom or show your camera or continue to lurk, because, hey, that's part of the internet culture as well. But please, Jeanette. Well, I think, you know, something that's been kind of an unspoken undercurrent in a lot of what I've heard tonight is this, uh, the note, the idea of literacy. And I think, Jesse, that's what you just described, that people on social media who are talking in a reflective way about the algorithm, about the way their experience of social media is being manipulated and their awareness of that manipulation, that's a, a great example of literacy. And and I think we should look at that term a little bit because unfortunately, even the term literacy has really been corrupted and turned into something that's, I think, quite different from what we're talking about here. Um, I'm really talking not so much about knowledge um, or a kind of technical understanding of the system that one is literate in, but really more about a, a comfort level and a familiarity. Um, it's something closer to what, let's say, hackers probably possess. Um, where one has almost an irreverence. I think that's really the key idea, a kind of irreverence towards the tool or the technology um, or the- And, and the... what do you mean by irreverence? You know, like, can, can you unpack that just a little? Sure, because I think it's the, the polar opposite of what we've been talking about, that power can monopolize a powerful tool like AI for their own purposes by mystifying it, by creating a shroud of uh, a cloud of, of uh, unknowingness around it, right? Turning it into a religious object. Um, so this unknowable AI is something we can fear. Uh, it, and as PJ pointed out, very many legitimate and very grounded fears because it, it does have all kinds of very real ill effects on people who often have no way to respond to that. But I think that that this is where the literacy piece comes in. Um, you know, to go back to Murley's point about about debunking, um, that it's not just a matter of, and Sharita referenced this, you know, the Wizard of Oz of pulling back the curtain and exposing the little man behind the frightful uh, illusion but also uh, appropriating it, making it your own. I, I totally understand the resistance to engagement with AI consciously and saying, screw this, I'm not gonna have anything to do with this stuff, this stuff is evil. But I think you gotta make it your own. Um, it, it, we can't 
we it's one thing to say, oh, all of these big tech companies have monopolized this and they've, you know, they're using it in these these terrible ways and there's so little we can do about it. If we just walk out of the game, yeah, that we've ceded the ground to them. They now do dictate the terms for the use of this tool. Uh, whereas I think that engaging in this kind, you know, conversations like today, I think are a great example of how that literacy can grow from the bottom up. Um, and that this losing your reverence, losing your fear, getting your hands dirty in there, exploring alternatives. I think the most wonderful thing that came up is, you know, David's comment about that kind of big, you know, energy sucking AI that we have, that has been naturalized, that has been normalized for us, isn't the only way to do it. How many of us knew that? I didn't, right? He just, he blew my mind with this entirely different version of AI, a completely different version of this tool. So I think that's what I mean by irreverence is that, you know, maybe we need to be sticking out our tongues at this. And like I said, not afraid to get in there and mess around with it. So I, I'm just going to briefly read a comment by Phil, uh, not really intending to lurk, but I think literacy and demystification are important. I think the biggest threats are, I think, as PJ is pointing out, is the potential for exploitation, but also deception. I recall a news article a few months ago back that used mid-journey or generative imaging to fake a photo to drive home their story or the terrible power of deep fake tech, which continues to evolve. I've been uh, reporting ads on Google that have like Elon Musk, but it's clearly not Elon Musk endorsing things. It's not actually illegal, and yet it is now common in YouTube ads. I'm not so concerned about styling off existing artists as this is what artists do unless they're outsiders. And, and I'll also uh, confirm anecdotally that I'm seeing a large number of ads that are some form of fake news, some deep fakes using either celebrities or newscasters, almost always to promote cryptocurrency. Like it's overwhelmingly cryptocurrency scams, if not uh, casinos and, and sports betting. Um, but Merle, I, I want to bring you back on, on this issue of kind of, you know, the power of tools like Midjourney and the, and the power of these tools, both from an artist's perspective, perspective, but also from a deception perspective. And and I say this because I suspect that you are someone who's kind of pro-propaganda in, in the sense that you've grown up on an Internet full of memes and you don't see the same separation between like journalism and not journalism but instead it's kind of all internet content. So I'm, I'm curious kind of where you fall within the broader concerns of the power of these generative media tools and how they are already being used for, you know, scams and, and, and deceptive purposes. Well, I mean, I think uh, the deception goes back well before AI tools were available. There was always, well, not always, but for a long time, there's been Photoshop and you know retouching and and other techniques that could be used to uh, misrepresent something it may be easier now with the advent of ai tools but i think that the ideas have always been around um it's 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 an interesting paradigm where we're, we're talking a lot about uh you know the powers that be and how they 
influence these things, how they monopolize our data. And what I was thinking about is sort of the idea of the company town and kind of how that relates to social media insofar as to use, you know, Google, uh, you're sacrificing data, but, you know, you need to Google whatever you need to Google for your your purposes of, of research or curiosity or whatever. Um, and, you know, what is, wh- how do we get out of the company town? <laughs> is there a revolution? Does it mean that we all need to uh, make a, a individual move away from AGI and, and run our own um, algorithms and, and AI models for our purposes? I think open source is a great opportunity for that but open source also gets you know often uh well taken over by larger companies and appropriated for big corporations needs well and let me ask you then a follow-up question because you know david posted a comment about hollywood has always been doing certain kinds of visuals for commercials or films for a long time only now it's just more available i mean and briefly merely on a hardware level are these open source tools accessible? Like, you know, could we re- be running Stable Diffusion or some of the other, some of the Facebook tools that Meta's made available for free on like your computer? Or would we have to invest in, you know, the 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 the, the, the larger graphic chips or the larger, you know, work cluster systems to actually achieve that stuff? How accessible is it really? It So... It is accessible insofar as, you know, I have done some AI artwork. I can demo some of that briefly. Here's a cow that I generated, which is seemingly on fire. Now, the ethics of this might be questionable. Obviously, this cow is not real. It's AI generated, and so is the fire. But the thing is, to do that, I had to download a lot of software from NVIDIA, which is a huge corporation. And I had to have an NVIDIA graphics card. So while I, as you know, an individual consumer, am able to use the open source software, the software itself is open source and available. The technology behind it, you know, I, I was also I had to be able to afford uh, that graphics card and uh, the electricity to power it. So. While it is somewhat accessible, a lot of it is still um, monopolized in a sense by larger corporations. Although David does point out that this is changing, that there are now open source across video cards and for $400, you can get a video card. But $400 is still a lot of money, right? And and that's just the card and not the rest of the computer. So I, I think this in relative terms is accessible. But in direct economic terms, you know, it it does still require a certain level of socioeconomic status to even play with these tools, right? Let let alone sort of create those alternatives. Sorry, Merle, you wanted to finish. It it also comes back to literacy because I I did have to go through a fair bit of, like there there are tools out there that make it easier and services that make it easier. But if you want to do it by yourself, aside from all the, you know, financial investment, there's the the time investment and the intellectual investment that you have to make to learn how to actually set these things up, use them, and practice and get better, right? To create effective deep fakes or images or whatever. Uh, some people have 
that time and others don't. So there's there's technology literacy, but there's also just the the investment in time uh, that is not always available. Well, and, and that goes to your point about the company town. When you invest yourself on that learning curve, you know, are you benefiting because you're getting the skills or is the company benefiting because you're committing to their platform or you're committing to their technology or their language? Mm -hmm. Now, Susan, I noticed you brought your camera on. So this is where I'll take the opportunity to say if you'd like to join the conversation, by all means, please. We'd love to hear your thoughts about AI in general and AI ethics in particular. Uh, well, I'm sorry to have joined the conversation late, but uh, something came up and here I am, half an hour behind the time. Um, I've listened to a few speakers and uh, all have interesting things to say. I've been involved in the Internet since the Internet's inception and I've had numerous websites and I was part of lots of social media prior to Instagram, so Twitter, Facebook. Um, and uh, I'm not sure I I'm not sure I am totally on side with this. You know, it's the powerful corporations versus all the little guys out here in terms of in terms of AI. I look at and listen to things like um, high school great in fact maybe even grade school students uh, doing deep fakes of their classmates and posting them online uh, you know sexualizing young girls more of the same of what we've seen for millennia probably and I find that I find that frightening I find that even more frightening than so-called powers that be using these tools, at least you can recognize that, right? You can go, oh, well, that's whoever, is, whoever you see as being evil is using the tools, but it's regular normal people who are doing evil shit that is scary to me. Um, and I, I just, I don't, I, I don't see a way around it. So that's one point. Another point is people people rail at uh, the fact that um, government is invading our privacy. Sorry, my cat's scratching my sofa. Invading our privacy. But people have no idea that there is no privacy anymore. There is, if you have a phone, that's it. You, you everything you do is known by somebody somewhere. And and I don't think people get that. So that's an, that's another point. A third point is as a writer I'm really pissed off that words of that have been generated by people are being used to further this whole uh, AI thing. And words, art, um, it's being essentially stolen in my, in my view. And I don't think that's fair. So that's my two cents worth so far. 
Well, well and, if it's and, any consolation, Susan, Alexander Pope felt the same way back in the early 18th century. He didn't. He, <laughs> he felt it was really degrading his, you know, professional prestige as well. So uh, it's a it's you know, you're up there with the greats in terms of of feeling that there is something inherently degrading about what this technology is doing in terms of bringing down or damaging, let's say, uh, current conceptions of art. But can I can I respond to Susan just by re referencing the last thing Carly said, which I, I found really moving and, and really intriguing. So just to refresh everyone's memory, Carly talked about her sort of massive data footprint that as an artist, as a person who, you know, records her daily life, that uh, that there is just a huge amount of uh, data. She has a data second self. And as a historian, the first thing I thought is, oh, wow, Carly, some future historian is going to love you. They, they're going to say, what a rich subject we have here. And then my second thought was, oh, my God, they better have some great AI tools to go through that data because... That is such a formidable amount of information. And that typically, especially if you're dealing with huge data sets as historians, the first pass through it is you're looking for patterns. You're looking for interesting. And, and of course, that's what exactly what AI excels at identifying, right? And I, I'm talking about the narrow AI tools that we have today, not some sort of mythical uh, godlike AI um, to go back to Susan's thing about privacy, you're absolutely right. We have no privacy, but at the same time, there is no one who is simultaneously looking at every bit of data exhaust that we give off. That is actually impossible. Can that stuff be accessed by someone? For sure, if they go looking for it, yes, it, it's there. But are we simultaneously all being monitored every single second? I'm pretty sure that's not possible. So I think- uh -huh. Although David you know, Post, can, I, can I can I respond Please go to ahead. that? Yes, go ahead, Susan. Yeah, so so I as I said, I've been online since the advent of online. And I have a very open, you know, if you search me, you will find multiple sites, lots of information. So I'm not afraid of being open. I'm just the point I'm making is that people who think there is privacy are sadly mistaken and and if you're fight if you're if you're saying well you know the the government or whoever should protect our privacy they may as well forget it i don't really care about my privacy i'm going to be dead soon that's my standard line is it doesn't really matter the ultimate privacy Although yeah, to, exactly. to connect two things and then bring Carly in, who has quite nicely raised her hand. You know, I wonder if, you know, Susan's point about we've lowered the barrier to doing evil, right? Like it used to be we had certain social barriers. We had certain community barriers that could prevent people from doing mean stuff. And I think it does feel anecdotally as if the Internet has made it easier for people to do mean stuff. And if there's a correlation there in terms of the way in which we think about not just privacy, because I think on the one hand, if everyone had the literacy that Susan has in terms of realizing that if you commit a crime, the evidence will be easy for them to collect. 
but yet it's easy for people to engage in activity that they can and often are caught for. And there's a kind of paradox to that that I think goes back to this larger issue of AI ethics. But please, Carly, uh, I, I jump into the conversation. I think that expression of lowering the bar for evil is is really helpful. And it, but it did make me think about also lowering the bar for acts of helpfulness or you know goodness because I think there is that too. It's just that the the evil gets more eyeballs, and so is you know, more effect, like it's, it, it, the meme spreads further, I think. Um, I am loving this conversation and I, 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 there's something that I've been trying to think about how to express. I'm going to try my best, but feel free to help me out here. But it's about sort of this like once removed sense of privacy or a once removed sense of truth. And I think what I'm, it's like decentralized. So I could like, cause in a way my sense of privacy isn't just my own private data, but it's like, I'm actually invested in our collective privacy because if everybody's data comes out, then our patterns become very manipulatable. And then my whole society can get manipulated in a way that could hurt me or hurt people I love or hurt the society I care about. And that's not my private data. It's like the little bit of everybody's data that, that is intertwined somehow in my social identity and you know and then I also was thinking it's the same with truth like when there's a deep fake and somebody believes it to be true there's a little death of the real that happens there but it doesn't just happen there like their trust in reality is undermined and it'll affect every interaction they have after that and so and trust is one of those things once it's lost it's you never really get it all the way back and so I I think that's something that I'm like sort of curious about and floating around is this idea of just like decentralized privacy, decentralized truth, how the power of AI is that it becomes decent. We are decentralized, our intelligence. Um, but what else gets just like off-centered from that too at the same time? Well, and, and I'm glad you brought back the, the notion of kind of collective awareness, because I think that that is a byproduct of us scaling up our human contact. Right. Where, you know, we, we are now on the one hand, perhaps to PJ's original critique, not spending enough time with each other in person. But we are on some level spending more time connecting with people online. And I think that that's having different effects on us. But to your point, Carly, I think AI is enabling us to to observe a collective consciousness that was previously invisible with the most cliched example, that being trending topics. Right. Because most of the platforms, you know, YouTube with their trending videos, they all love to show trending topics. And I always find it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because they become trending because you've called them trending and then everyone kind of piles in and gets on it. And and it it's a skewing of what we would think about in terms of collective awareness or collective consciousness. But I think it to go back to the literacy points gets people thinking to the idea, hey, maybe everyone thinks like me or to David's point, you start realizing, hey, I'm an anomaly. Nobody thinks like me, which can be an alienating experience unto itself. Although I notice for young people, it can often be a very uniting experience. Right. And this is how neurodivergent 
emergence has become so normalized for younger generations because they're finding the bond and hey we're different and and that's cool that is a different a uh, uh, kind of collective bond but again i think we're all you know to go to susan's point around privacy we're all kind of assuming that we see that the emperor is naked Right. Or we see that there's, you know, a person behind the curtain. And the larger question is how many people have that literacy, right? To, to Lawrence kind of evoking the layperson, right? That not everyone has a sense of what's going on. And, and that's where I do want to bring us back to, to ChatGPT and MidJourney and some of this generative AI. Because, you know, Susan's point about copyright and about writers, I think, is is important because these we're going to see some uh, trials this year. We're going to see there's currently over 50 different uh, class action lawsuits targeting the AI companies, OpenAI in particular, uh, uh, waged on behalf of copyright holders, on behalf of authors, on behalf of different license holders. And, and there will be different judges who will weigh in on whether fair use applies, on whether we have a new realm of copyright and, and this is where I will confess, I was sitting out. I was not using any of these tools until it occurred to me that this is a Napster moment, that I kind of remembered Napster. And, and Napster was a brief blip in time, right? You know, like it came and it went. And I kind of have a feeling that what we're seeing right now could come and go that it could be a blip in terms of how we think about copyright. So Susan, you've got your hand up, please. Yeah, just to uh, add to what you've just said about uh, trials and lawsuits, uh, I read today that uh, George Carlin's family is bringing a suit or uh, suing a podcast for using an AI-generated routine based hey, on hey. his stuff. Except it's even funnier than that. It turns out that they lied, that they didn't actually use an AI. They wrote it themselves, claimed it was an AI. As you said, they got sued by the estate because the estate was like, hey, wait a minute, that's our business. And their first response was, no, it's a trick. We're sorry, we wrote it ourselves. In theory, the court will decide if they're lying about lying. But again, it raises interesting points around authorship, right? Around who's legally responsible for the creation. One of the preliminary rulings has been that content created by these AI systems cannot be subject to copyright. So where whether it's infringing copyright is still an open question. But currently, if you use these systems to create content, you can't copyright that content unless you modify it further. Right. With the Copyright Board in the United States saying that it's not original creation. Right. It's not created by a human. It doesn't fall. But I think all of this is up for debate. I think all of this is going to be settled, uh, not settled, debated uh, in, in a range of different trials. And, and I'm not sure where it's headed. But I implicitly felt that that I wanted to be uh, front and center, that I wanted to understand kind of what was uh, going on with this. You know, Phil also mentioned the monkey selfie copyright dispute, which was uh, a classic moment in the early days of social media where a, a researcher left a camera set up and a monkey took a selfie of themselves. And that selfie became very popular. And then the question was, who owns the copyright of that image? Can I jump in here? Because this, this discussion of copyright is kind of killing me here. 
I think we got to step back for a minute and remember that copyright is not designed to protect authors, creators, or artists. It's designed to protect publishers, right? Who own the right to reproduce the work. So it has nothing to do with the creative origins of the work in its origins. And I think that's really important. It's always been a blunt instrument. It really hasn't done a good job protecting creatives. And maybe this is an opportunity because this challenge that AI and especially things uh, like ChatGPT and Midjourney and what, whatever else present the challenge they're presenting may be the opening for redressing this and and coming up with a better way of you know maybe we need to go back into those discussions about what value do artists bring what is the value of and their work how do we acknowledge that in a way that isn't copyright um so Car carly just raised her hand so i'll bring you in and david you posted a, an excellent and very long comment in the chat so if you wouldn't mind i'd love for you to also come back on camera and and share that thought because i think it's very relevant but carly if i saw you correctly you yes, know what please. i was actually just clicking to read david's comment that's what it looked like i wasn't <laughs> raising my hand so let's hear from david david we need to hear from you this this is clearly a a, a relevant part of the conversation yeah and i'm sorry Oops. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'm taking the uh, the corporate apologist uh, to some degree here because uh, I know that um, one of the people who had a very vested interest in, uh, in AI being like AI corporate corporate models being successful said that in reality, um, you know, very few people who you know are writers or produce art actually make a living from it. Um, and, uh, you know, Jeanette pointed out that it's actually largely an industry and it exists for its own self and, uh, you know, probably dominated by Disney and like has its own agendas. And, you know, I, I think in, improving democratic systems is the key. And that's, you know, and in, in some to some degree, you know, the kind of folklore transmission of uh, like works that people create in art is what we have as like one model of democracy. But um because you know, because most people don't even read the original work; they just like they get some essence from it, and they talk to somebody else about about it, and, and it gets mixed up a lot. So um, you know, we can't just throw the whole thing out. Um, but I, I'm not sure that something better couldn't be created, and maybe these intermediaries could be part of that. But that's a big reach, and, and there's a lot of things that would work against that. <laughs> well, and, and on the one hand, there's you know a lot of blockchain proponents who have been designing systems that attempt to do that. There are um, uh, 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 Adobe as part of a huge coalition of people that are creating the equivalent of watermarks in content that help both denote authorship but also remixes and collaboration and they're building a system that's meant to detect uh, deep fakes or at least authenticate when things are not deep fakes and similarly pj made a point early on that people should get paid for their data right and get paid for their attention as the brave tokens do and and my problem with that has always been well i don't really want to commodify all of my attention and all of my data yeah although the counter argument to be well that's already happened you know a <laughs> uh, uh, maybe semi my cut uh susan posted a comment that she wanted to have Jeanette's references with respect to copyright especially as it relates to writers do you want to elaborate that uh, Jeanette, and maybe tie it into david's comments about how maybe we need a better system that rewards writers directly uh and circumvents some of the uh, uh tactics that publishers have used 
to kind of ensure that royalties don't flow as they should? Um, sure. I mean, I'll try and be brief. You know, Susan, mostly what I'm speaking to is uh, the area that I studied, which was 18th century England and the and the, the legal origins of copyright there, which very much lay with the printers, right, and the publishers um, who were looking to secure the, to protect their investment, essentially, right? It's a huge capital investment to print off a run of a book. And, um, and the authors just didn't have the the clout to to protect their works, uh, but the printers did, uh, in part because they were organized, right? Uh, which is sort of an interesting thing. And it just I have to add an aside here for a moment. What's really interesting is the novel, which comes out of that same period and is kind of considered our literary genre. You know, it's kind of a high literary genre in in, in great regard now has its origins in essentially printers. They needed stuff to run on these presses, right? And then the traditional genres weren't enough. You know, you have to run that press constantly to make your, your money back on it. So one of the more enterprising fellows early on, Samuel Richardson, started writing these endlessly long novels. Pamela, Clarissa, Sir Charles Grandison, these are thousands of pages long because they were serialized, right? This guy, this is pre-Dickens, but same idea. And I mean, this guy is the father now, one of the fathers of that genre that we see as a high art genre, but it was really just to make money as a printer. Um, so are we going to see new kinds of art coming out of the most base commercial <laughs> kind of applications of AI. I, I have to wonder if we can see a similar development, you know, this kind of surprise um, coming out. Uh, maybe art isn't always born in the purest of, uh, or the noblest of motives. Well, and then you get into the question of what is art? What is real? What is fake? What is created by the human? What is created by the AI? And I think the answer all depends. But what I find interesting about the debate around authorship and the debate around copyright is it, it I think in the end, it will all be traceable, right? How we decide what that means is a separate issue, a legal issue, say, of who gets paid what. But, you know, hip hop music has a similar narrative arc where there was a time when they were sampling in hip hop and it was all spontaneous. They didn't think about asking for permission. They didn't have to pay any royalties. And then all of a sudden it was Vanilla Ice, ironically. Vanilla Ice was the first lawsuit over samples. And after that, every single note, every single tune and every single song is measured, is tracked, is compared, is analyzed. Now, the side part to this is Vanilla Ice made so much money on Ice Ice Baby that he now owns the publishing rights to Under Pressure by Queen, right? He made so much money pirating the song that he was able to buy the song that he has to pay the royalties to, right? Which speaks to the irony of how these sorts of things kind of play out. But again, I, I think in the end, as these AI uh, systems proliferate content, I think all of that content will be, it'll be possible to analyze its origins. Now, what that means, it could just be citations in a system that shows that, you know, this writer was very popular or, you know, this artist was remixed millions of times. 
or it could be monetary system or it could be royalties. I, I, we're not sure, but I think that's part of what we're seeing when it comes to how uh, copyright is being effectively remixed as a result of this technology. Susan, please. So, as I said, I've got a number of websites and I've done a lot of blogging and I found content, my own content, on other websites claimed as their content. And Google had, I don't know if they still do, but they had a mechanism by which you could report that content as being stolen. Because as soon as you publish something, so I am the publisher of my own content. It's not published by somebody else. I, so I understand your point about historical, the historical development of copyright. However, and I, I, don't, I don't think that that still applies. I am the owner of my content, just as I am the owner of any words I speak. So I'm writing a book at the moment that um, is includes conversations between myself and somebody else. And those conversations, that person's voice has to be altered. Their voice in written words has to be changed so that they can't charge me with copyright infringement on their words. So it's all becomes very <laughs> fluid. Um, but I can tell you that I was not happy when the, because I do a lot of research and, you know, my, my posts are factual and accurate. And I was not happy that people cut, copied and pasted my content and claimed it as their own. Now, Google did remove the content from the sites after I complained, but it took a long time and a lot of effort to get that done. Well, and I assume it removed the sites from the index of Google. No. But the sites are still out on the internet? Yeah. Right? And and I mean, I assume also that that's kind of a pre-AI because most of those scams... Yes, this was several like years ago. Like they're using RSS feeds. Right. And, yeah. they're, and, and they're and in some cases copying and pasting because it is a very common scam. Right. Where they're just lifting people's content. Although, to your point, you're the publisher. Right. And as the publisher, I think that was the first revolution in the Internet in terms of like HTML, because HTML back in the 90s meant we could all be publishers. Right. And, and that was a huge shift in terms of. You know, from what Jeanette was talking about in the original days of the printing press being far prohibitive to now where anyone can publish. But then the larger question is, can you control what you've published? And, you know, yes and no is the answer. It's complicated. Yes, if you have resources. No, if you don't have a multi-million dollar legal budget to, you know, go and uh, uh, threaten cease and desist letters. So it, or, it, or it what can be very some of these difficult. 18th century publishers did is they would just hire a gang of ruffians to go <laughs> beat up the pirates because piracy is as old as the publication of works. I mean. The personal touch of hired goods. Yes, yeah. uh, that's how all copyright disputes can be settled. 
Now, uh, Phil posted an interesting uh, comment. I think there may certainly be a fresh run of art, like photographers in the 70s taking Polaroids of their subjects to nail the light and framing before wasting film. Artists now can use generative AI to explore ideas before investing the time and resources. And some really great things can come from that. And I know from personal experience, I think of it as, you know, testing the waters. Right. Uh, a sort of seeing what might work uh, with an audience or seeing what might work with the marketplace. And then once you get a, a, a key, that's when you could commit to, say, doing a book project. Right. Or doing an extensive art project, which, you know, take time, take resources, take commitment. Uh, we are uh, kind of running out of steam in terms of this general conversation. Uh, have there been any topics that we haven't touched upon yet? Are there any elements of AI? Carly has her hand up, please. Yes. And props for your multitasking. Yeah. yeah, you got it. Um, well, I just put, again, putting it out there, like you were talking about creative ways of using it. Something that's been happening in our household lately is um, like we'll have my parents over and then my 13 year old kid and we'll play this game where we like give chat GPT prompts and then that's part of our conversation altogether. And sometimes it, you know, and it's this collective thing. Like we, we used to play charades, we still do, but then this is like this other weird thing we do. And sometimes we'll even think of stuff we want to teach our kids or talk to them about, but we'll get chat GPT to say it to them. So we'll say, how, okay, so give, because he, it's the 13-year-old who has it. We don't, I don't have it yet. I think I have to. No, but it, we'll give him prompts and then he'll say, okay, and he'll create it. And then it'll talk him into doing something we want him to do, like his chores or something. But it'll do it like in the genre of a particular rap song we like. And then it'll be Shakespearean. And then it'll be, we'll say, well, can you make it for someone who's a little more cynical? Can you make it for someone who's a little more savvy? And then it'll just keep adjusting it and we watch the different versions and that's our family activity. So I think like, you know, I am open to the playfulness that can happen. Like I'm scared, but I also think I'm excited to play with this new toy. Um, yeah. Right on. You know, uh, David, sorry, I, go ahead, PJ. I just, I really have to go, but I also just wanted to share uh, a quote there from this ethical unicorn group. I'm going to put the link in about, uh, the no tech for apartheid campaign and what's been happening with AI in terms of uh, IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces choosing who to bomb. I, I really, I, I'm so dismal. Um, I don't mean to not about your conversation today, but I'm just, I'm still very uh, dismal, <laughs> dismal about our chances. But I do think that there is a lot of folks looking into boycott, divestment, and sanctions at a grassroots level all over the world right now. And they're starting to talk about especially Google and Amazon and their role in corporate control and how, like, like I said earlier about red zones and mortgages and who gets the loan and who gets the like money banking, cash checking places kind of rates. Um, the, the same with the way that they choose who to bomb right now. And it's, it's just, it's incredible how connected everything is. And I don't want us to see ourselves just as, uh, you know, as consumers um, of this, but also in, in a way that, like, I really think like what Carly said earlier about collective organizing and how to 
um, more effectively collectively withdraw our labor and our attention and put our attention into more um, positive and uplifting. And I didn't hear at the beginning a territorial acknowledgement, but I also just wanted to say, I'm on, I'm rating you, I'm calling you all today from unceded Coast Salish territory. This is not British Columbia. It was never sold or surrendered to the British. And sometimes the realities or the way that they are counted or classified is not actually the underlying truths. And so um, it's so important that we do use our voice and tell stories. And as artists, many of you can be uniquely placed to use technology and art to tell stories. But remember that there's a lot of things that are outside our perspectives. So try to look at what is not being counted, who is not included in this. When we're looking at who, how the algorithm was governed, look at how that data is counted and what data is going in and think about what is not included here, who is not being counted. So um, thank you very much, all of you, and uh, take care. Well, and to your point, I would point out that there are a lot of journalists in Gaza who are getting killed uh, as they try to report on the autonomous uh, uh, killing technology that is currently being tested and deployed, as well as in Ukraine. Unfortunately, yeah. in these two conflicts, we are seeing the rise of literal killer robots, uh, as, yeah. as the activists who are working against that point out. And in Gaza, there are journalists who are literally getting killed by these drones in an attempt to report on them and understand what's going on. So and, it's a very sober point to make. Yeah, it's Canadian police that have often developed these tools. There's a place in Hamilton, uh, Mohawks actually helped to blockade it a couple weeks ago, a few weeks back, um, that was involved in, uh, you know, this camera and surveillance systems that were going to the IDF. So a lot of this stuff is trained and developed and it's from Canada or the US, but a lot of it from Canada and is going there or around the world. Not although, don't so, discount the Israeli military industrial complex and their exporting of AI technology uh, to tyrants around the world as well. Uh, sure, there's a lot sure. of uh, yeah, uh, uh, technology the development military, there. The Israeli military was had a, one of the best uh, cracking <laughs> signal um, articles that I've seen, but they, they did it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they still need the device, but anyway. Um, so, yeah, for sure, I, I, I do think that there's uh, hope in, in collective organizing, but it, it's a grim, grim situation that we're in. We don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you, PJ, for your Thank participation. You. Any other final comments, thoughts before we conclude for the evening? I just Jeanette? want to push back a little bit against this idea that opting out is the way to go. Because, And maybe if I'm misreading what PJ said, I apologize. But I'm pretty sure that it, serious injustice existed in this world before AI. The first Nakba happened in the absence of AI. So I think the tool is here. We ignore it at our peril. That we, if we turn our backs on this, then it, it, then we have lowered the bar for evil because we've left it to the hands of whoever wants to grab it first. I think, it, I think we have a deep responsibility to engage with this thing. We don't have to wow. do it the way that Google wants to do it, but I think we, we have to give this our attention. 
And then let me try to wrap up using that to come back to Susan's point about young people and the way in which they're often weaponizing this technology on each other. It's often because adults aren't privy to the discussion. Adults aren't spending time in their digital spaces. That's why I loved Carly's example of like the three generations sitting around the table playing with chat GPT, because I think we need to be spending time with our young people in their spaces using their tools so that we can help socialize and normalize the values that we have as human beings, that we have as compassionate and, and empathic human beings who want to see a world in which people have the, the freedom to express themselves, the freedom to be themselves, and the freedom to not get bombed by drones uh, uh, flying uh, up above them. Uh, so unless there's any final comments, I think we will uh, conclude. Yes, Carly, please. It's actually just a question, like an invitation to you, Jesse, because you've been really great at facilitating the conversation and you have been sharing your stuff. But I just wonder for you, like you mentioned, for example, that Napster thing, how you're using it, like how are you using it to what end? Or I just I kind of want to throw it to you and say sure. like, what what else would you have to share before we go? I mean, I'm I'm in the early stages of wrapping my head around it. What Carly knows that she may be teasing is I'm currently using it to give voices to my animals. I sort of see AI inherently as a puppet, and I'm trying to use that puppet and learn how that puppet works. But I also see a lot of potential, quite frankly, for propaganda, for, you know, creating images, creating uh, concepts, art fundamentally. Uh, to Susan's point, I think the word writing is still quite uh, uh, broken uh, in that you're, you're not really getting the same type of potential, but that could change versus the image production, the media production is mind blowing. So I'm, I'm in the playing stage. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, to a certain extent, I, I do play with it intergenerationally because I'm sharing this stuff with my parents and I'm sharing this stuff uh, with younger generations. Um, but to answer your question, Carly, I still don't know. I, I, I'm really trying to kind of wrap my head around how it's being used, how other people are being used using it. I think the primary benefit of my use is literacy and that I can now recognize when other people use it. And it's easier for me to detect those kind of telltale signs. But I, I don't I, I, I part of why I wanted to have this conversation tonight was to think about use cases, to think about how to wrap it, uh, wrap my head around it. And I think your point, uh, Carly, of kind of, you know, constructing my second self, right? I also, like Susan, I've created a, a deep digital trail over the years. Lots of writing, lots of websites started, abandoned, but still there. Um, there there's a part of me that thinks, hey, maybe AI could organize that and stitch it together so I can leave a time capsule. Right. So that when I pass, if anyone does want to say, hey, what were they thinking back then? Then I'll make the job easier for the historian or the undergrad student who's going to write a paper on, you know, what people were doing in 2020 or 2010 or 2000. But I don't know. I uh, This is something, again, that I want to hear what other people are using and how they're using it. And uh, that's, for me, the primary reason why I wanted to have this discussion and, and why I benefited greatly uh, from hearing from all of you. Uh, again, any final remarks, last thoughts, closing calls, last call for alcohol? Yes, Susan, please. 
Why don't you do a survey? In in which context? Uh, how do you use artificial intelligence and just like put it out there? Sure, that's actually a good idea. On Survey Monkey, you know, do you do yeah, this? Yeah. Do you do that? Do you do the other? Just to kind of get a a pulse as a beginning, right? Yeah. No, and in particular, like regular people. Yes, exactly. It all comes down to who you target for the survey. And and you're right. I think there's an interesting methodology of creating a survey that is, from a language perspective, as accessible as possible. It makes questions that are easy for people to answer and then target it at people who are not necessarily self-styled AI experts. Excellent idea. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Any other final I thoughts? won't charge you for that. I won't charge you. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> totally well, free. Well, and uh, completely my own intelligence. But if you see it <laughs> on other websites, don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> Any other final comments before we take the dogs for their final constitutional? All right. Well, I thank all of you for hanging out, having a great chat. Good to see old friends. Nice to see new friends. Uh, I suspect we'll continue to do this type of stuff in the future. So, you know, keep an eye on your local algorithm. And otherwise, uh, echopunks.live is our website where you can find our email lists and other projects. Again, thanks. Good night, everybody. Have a good Wednesday and have a good rest of your week. Take care, everyone.